This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk. And we are talking to Simon Twain today. He's a brand new author. I've never spoken to him before. Never actually read him before. This is the first book his I've ever read. And he's here to join us and talk about it. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I really, I really, really enjoyed this book. I, I didn't oh, know what to expect. Did. I mean, you're one of these authors I've heard things about and I've read things about online. You just, it's one of those things where you just, I got it. You know, because this one looked good, and I got an email saying asking me if I, you know, wanted to read it, and it, it sounded good, and it, and it is good, very good. Well, good. That's good. Well, thank you very much. That's very nice of you to say. Oh. Now, I know, I'm, as, as a reader myself, I'm the same. I sort of hear about books and hear about authors, and you make a note where you buy the book, and it's just there's just not enough hours in the, in the day to get round to them all. Exactly. Was this a, a tough book to re- to to write? Um, no, no, it, it kind of should have been because like my previous books were more sort of Dan Brownie kind of sort of, you know, crash and dash uh, kind of psychological, uh, I mean, uh, uh, thrillers, you know, sort of um, traditional thrillers, I suppose. And so this is much more contained. There's no sort of big um, overarching um, conspiracy underpinning it or anything. Um, and so the kind of, sm- I did wonder whether I went into it, whether the smaller canvas would be limiting and would be difficult. But I, I loved it actually, because I think, you know, in that way, what you can do is you can focus more on the on the details and spend more time with the characters if they're not moving around every two pages. So, um, and also, you know, it's sort of this kind of, it's a bit like a, it's a bit of a lock room mystery. It's not a true lock room mystery, but it's got a lock room, lock room mystery element to it. It sort of starts off feeling like one. Um, and you know, if you're a mystery writer or a crime writer, then that's sort of the, that's the kind of the holy grail. You know, it's like I think every mystery writer wants to at some point try and write one just because they're difficult. You know, because you know the parameters are so. Well, hey, what do you see yourself as? More of a crime writer or a mystery writer or? Or you, or you both. I, I just, I just see. I, it's funny. It's one of those things that you know other people put you in boxes, and I understand why. Because you know when you go to Amazon, you want to, or if you run a bookshop, for example, you need, you need to know what shelf to put it on. But when I set out to write a story, I just want to write a good story. I just want to write a story that I would like to read and that will keep me intrigued. And so I apply. I try and in, imbue it with all of the characteristics of the kind of book that I'd like to read. Well, the thing is, it's it, right. I'm sorry. No, I, just, I don't necessarily set out going, today I'm going to write a crime book, tomorrow right. I will write a thriller. You know, it's, I just sort of go, oh, that's a good story, I want to write it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just I just like to write good, I hope I just write good stories. That's that's the sort of genre I want to be in. Well, it makes me wonder, I mean, when you when you see mystery, right everybody thinks it's going to be a murder. There has to be a murder. If it's a mystery, what else? Or you can't call it a mystery. So it's like, and this one does have a murder in it. So there is a mysterious element about the book, for sure. But it's also a thriller, so you could call it either, and then you get into a long discussion. You know, which do you call it? Which is which is preferable? I think it's more of a crime thriller. 
I would agree with you. I think so. Because of the police uh, investigative element, uh, which is not front and centre, but it's definitely there. It's definitely sort of one of the one of the lines that run, the narrative lines that run through it. Um, but the focus is not, but because the focus isn't purely on the detective, it's on some, you know, this, this academic who's pulled into it, um, you know, sort of unwillingly really, uh, because her book is left at the crime scene and she, you know, sort of, she's sort of implicated as like, well, there's, there's no forensics here and it's your fault because the killer read your book. Um, you know, it, it's because it follows her, it feels, I think, less like a sort of pure, um, kind of crime thriller, um, it's a very interesting. What I wanted to do. Yeah, she have a, she's got a very interesting name, Lafton Rees. It's Lawton. Lawton. No, it's actually. Oh, it's not Lafton. It's Lawton. No, no, I, I know, look stupid re- now. No, no, no. Do you know what? I realised that because someone else came up to me. I went to a thing recently, and someone said, "Oh, how do you? You know, I was about to do an appearance um, at a literary festival, and the first thing the interviewer said was, "How do you pronounce the name?" And the thing is, it's sort of explained at the end because she is an origin story where the name comes from. Um, well, now I look even dumber because I've actually read the book. <laughs> actually, no, remember right. that. It's, it's in a quiet moment right towards the end oh, okay. uh, when, when she's having a conversation with Tanner, so you easily missed. But no, I just figured, and it's funny, I've written the follow-up already, and I think what I need to do very early on in the book is have someone ask the question, how do you pronounce your name, and her explain it so that people, you know, so that people know. It's almost like a little crib sheet for the reader. Right. But I hate to say it, but it sounds, it sounds more amusing when you say left and Left and read. Whatever works. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a quirky name. I don't know what, and I should have, I should have thought to say that. I'm, I'm wondering to myself, why didn't you say, why did you go right to left? Because you saw the word left. That's, that's what it is. I know. It's funny, but it, it yeah, because the origin story, I mean, this isn't giving too much away, is that um, she's named after the actor, director, Charles Lawton, oh. because he directed Night of the Hunter, which was her dad's favorite film. Oh. That's the explanation at the end of the book. Isn't he also, so wasn't he also an actor too? Yeah, yeah, he played um, Crassus in Spartacus, you know. The, the, the I think he was on Meet, in Mutiny in the Valley too, wasn't he? He was, he was Bly, he was in the, he was, uh, he was um, Bly in the Brando uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, correct? Oh no, that was Trevor Howard, no, he was in an earlier version, and he was also in, uh, oh, what was it, the Kane Mutiny? He played the lawyer in the Kane Mutiny, I think. Imagine writing a book where they make so many different versions of your book, movie-wise, that every few years you get another one and more royalties come in. Must be very nice. Oh, no, amazing. Amazing. <laughs> it's yeah. like there's your pension sorted right there. Well, and it's because you write a character that's so memorable. I mean, when you do that, you know they're they're likely to want to do it over and over and over again because it, it's just it the, the character resonates so well. It's true, and I think those really iconic characters age well as well. You know, sort of they, they seem to, they, they have a universality and a timelessness which enables, you know, it to be remade every 10 years and still be relevant, I think. Um, like, you know, think about Dracula. You know, how many times has Dracula been made? And that's right. like a 200 year old story. And in each time, people read different things into it. It's like, oh, it's, it's, um, you know, so the original ones, the sort of Dracula. And who are they paying now for the Dracula books? I guess the, the, the estate. I don't know. It must be. I mean, yes, the, the Bram Stoker estate. I don't know. Do they pay them in blood know. or something? <laughs> Maybe, yes. Virgin. Fresh virgin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what they pay them in. It reminds me of that movie that, what, what's the one, Joe, uh, they made 
but oh, I forget the name of it. It was it was sort of like a a, a, a humorous aspect of Dracula, and I can't remember who. Oh, was, was it Love at First Bite? No, well, that too. But this was I'm not, that's not the one I was thinking of. I'm thinking of it, well, this was a foreign one, and he was really a sexual guy. I mean, really, they, they must have made it in an X-rated movie. So, but oh it was, God! Well, it lends itself totally, doesn't it? But they can do. I mean, if they had Blackula, they can do anything now. <laughs> These characters they want, you make them into something that wasn't meant to be in the beginning. Can you imagine what what the authors that really what Bram Stoker would think if he knew what they were doing? <laughs> uh, well, I, th I think he'd be delighted because I think he was a very unhappy man who sort of, you know, he was closeted, closeted, closeted homosexual at a time when it was illegal. And, was he really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was, and he was. He was in love with um, Sir Henry Irving. He was really? stage manager. At, uh, he was stage manager at, at a theatre in London that was owned and run by Sir Henry Irving, who is this. Well, American. you know a lot of stuff about Dracula. Well, my daughter's just done a kind of uh, thesis on this, so I know it very well. Um, and yeah, he was in love with him, and he was kind of in love with Oscar Wilde, and he, he wrote to Walt Whitman as well, who you know had been, wrote Howl at the time. It was sort of you know not Howl was was writing at the time. Mm. You know, and very much kind of being very honest about his sexuality and his nature. And he used to write to, he wrote to Walt Whitman, Bram Stoker, kind of saying, oh, you know, you've given voice to my things, you know. And, and so, so it's obviously, it's not, so it's not speculation. He obviously was massively closeted and very unhappy about it. Um, well, we could, Dracula, we could talk about Dracula's, yeah, Dracula's based on Henry Irving and, and Oscar Wilde to a large extent. Wow, how fascinating! We could we could talk all day about that, but we'll never get back to the book if we. I should, get, I should get my daughter in. She's much better on this than I am. I, I'm, I'm totally fascinated by that. I, I had no idea what was going on scenes there. So there they go. It's all there. But then, funnily enough, when sort of in, um, the whole, you know, because you, th you think about the RKO, the Bela Lugosi horror movies, a lot of which, like Frankenstein, not so much the, the Dracula, but Frankenstein, which was directed by James Whale, who was a closeted gay man in Hollywood who saw the whole, you know, the monster, in, saw the whole, you know, the kind of repressed, his own story in these these things. And it's kind of the, 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 the sort of lure of Dracula and Weiss and, and the outsider of Frankenstein. So, you know, you, looking back now in revisionist history, you look at it and you realize, you know, they made the film uh, Gods and Monsters, you know, with uh, oh, yeah. Keller, James Whale. And, and it's, 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 it is fascinating when you look at it how, these, the, as, as you said, a really good character can become a conduit for lots of people's stories. You know, it can carry lots of people's stories, even if the actual narrative doesn't really change that much. Um, they just stay relevant, you know. So here's the, I think you've already answered this question, but it sounds like this is going to be a series now? Yeah, it is. Um, it did, initially, I just wrote it because I had the idea, I had the central mystery in my mind. Because they wouldn't tell me that. They never tell you that when, when you're ready to interview the author. I don't know why would they not say that. It's because it's, you know, and it's funny because there's people who read it. Maybe it's a big mystery. <laughs> Every, well, no, but all, all bits are not a mystery, yeah. They play their cards close to the chest. Now, I've seen lots of people reviewed it very kindly and very warmly, and they've all said, oh, I really like these characters. I, I hope we see them again. Oh, and I'm yeah. constantly going, yeah, no, I've already written the follow-up. It's, it's written. It's coming out next year. It's I have to stop myself from saying, from saying left and again. It's Lawton, and I'm going to have to get that in my head now. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll, do, I'll, put a, I'll put a little reminder in the first <laughs> one. I'm actually doing notes on it now, so I'll add a little note. But it's it, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this could be like 25 books at some point or another? I mean, a well, series? I mean, the great, 
the great thing is that I really, um, at the moment, I know I'm only two books in and I'm planning the third one, um, I really like the characters, which isn't always the case. Sometimes you write a character and they're difficult and you struggle with them. Yeah, she's very intelligent. That means you have to be just as intelligent as her. Well, I, the thing is, I always say it's funny. You can actually make your characters cleverer than you. Uh, and people, is, I've said that before, and people go, how can you? And the thing is, of course, is what you do is, is you can think of a situation for two hours and research it and come up with the perfect solution or, or thing to say, and you can put it in your character's mouth and they say it instantly. So, so your two hours of fumbling about trying to find the right thing to say and the right direction to go, they come up with immediately. And so you can make your characters cleverer than you. I guess so, but you have to be somewhat clever to do that, though. Uh, you have to be clever to a degree, yes. But I think you have to be clever to a degree to be able to write. Well, well she has a anyway. yeah. She has a degree. She, I mean, she's extremely intelligent, which means every book you write, she's got to be the same way. She can't suddenly be dumb. Yeah, you know? no, I know. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the thing is, as a writer, it's like, and and with every book I've done, I've always tried to write something that either thematically is something I don't know that much about, but I'm interested in, because then through the process of writing the book, it's a good excuse to, to do a deep dive into whatever it is. Um, and and similarly, in terms of characters, I think um, it, it's always good to, you know, it's one of the great things about writing is you write these characters um, and you inhabit them and you, you live a different life. It's the same as a reader, you know, you sort of like for the, time that you're in that story and in that character's head, you live a different life. You know, it sort of expands your own ex existence and experience. Um, and so when writing, what you really want to do is be with someone that you like, uh, rather than someone who makes your skin crawl, which sometimes is the case, because, you know, you, you have to inhabit all of your characters, you know, every, even the villains, even the bad people, you have to make them flesh and blood and think about their life and think about the reasons because you know it's that thing it's that old adage is no no villain thinks no one thinks they're the villain you know they, they there's always a reason why they're doing it even if they know they're doing heinous things there's always some there's generally some reason there's some logic to it and, you, and as a writer you have to figure that out are you saying you have to go to dark places you do have to go to dark places yeah but then i think but then don't we all i mean you know the very if we read dark things and we watch dark things and we read and we watch true you know I mean, the explosion of true crime which is truly dark because it's actually happened to people shows yeah. you how fascinated people are and i think you know it's that it, we've always wanted as you know we're a curious animal and it's you know reading and watching things and stories really are a way of us um experiencing bad things without danger to us i think you know so they're they're kind of informative and also um you know they're kind of therapeutic to a degree as well because you wouldn't want to go through these things really but you can go through them uh, virtually or vicariously through reading a book um and so and writing a book is the same even though you have to go to a dark place I, I, there is some sort of catharsis in it there is some sort of value in it i think um but um and largely because what you're generally doing with a book is making sure that justice is served, which is so it's, you know, it's, an, it's you know, the upward arc, of a, the moral upward arc of a book, particularly crime books, is generally upwards and, and hopeful. Um, so and this will get, you have a beautiful woman getting murdered. Does an ugly woman ever get murdered, by the way? Oh, yeah. No, they do. They do. They do in real life. It seems like you but never read that. Is, book. I, What's that? 
but also, you know, the thing is, is like everyone's a beautiful to someone. That's the thing, you know. Someone's everyone's someone's yeah, daughter. That's everyone's, you know. That's the, you know. So, I, I, the, the, I mean, the, the, very, the fact that she's beautiful in and glamorous and rich in this one is all part and parcel of the story because it becomes newsworthy, and that's part of the. And you know, what's part of the one of the things I discuss is why is this crime front page news when another crime that happened on the same day is never mentioned, you know, and it's just, it's that value that things have that we attribute, you know, we just do. It's sort of like some stories take hold in the public imagination and others don't. Um, and Did you that's know? Part, that's part, right. I'm sorry. I was going to say, that's part, that's, part, that's part of what I, I was sort of exploring in this book. I have so many questions and I'm just stepping all over your words. I do apologize for that. No, they weren't. I have to, I'm one of those people, if I don't ask my question right away, I forget it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I'm the same. <laughs> it's, it's like, I can forget it. I have a really good question in the middle of a sentence. And but I was going to, I was going to, forgotten what it is. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you, you had this all planned out beforehand. Was it all planned out that she was going to be in this book? Um, she was, I mean, pretty quickly, yeah. I mean, what I had was the scenario. I had the, the end. I had, I sort of knew what the twist was. I generally normally know what the end is or have a strong idea of what the end will be. I mean, that might change during the writing of it, but I, I never really set out without knowing where I'm heading. And then generally what I do is I'll sort of work backwards um, and, and think about the best person who will go on the journey to discover whatever the secret is at the end or whatever it is. I mean, this one was slightly different because I sort I, I kind of started with the beginning, I, the, the opening scene where this body is found in this amazing mansion next to a Victorian graveyard in North London, um, you know, brutally murdered but no forensics, and these four weird objects around her that, that do not belong in this ultra-modern house. Um, that, I had that I had that image and that scene very quickly. I initially had her in a house and I just thought with the objects, these because the objects then tell the story as they sort of go into the objects it's, as you know, you know you've read it, it, it slowly mm -hmm. reveals not only the identity of the victim and why she was killed, but also it starts revealing the identity of Lawton, uh, whose book was left there, you know, and the killer seems to be talking to her and deliberately pulling her into this by leaking things to the press that he knows will be newsworthy. Right. You know, he's very much orchestrating it. Um, and I knew I had that scene, that dramatic scene of a body surrounded by objects. Initially, the book was called, my first sort of title was A History of a Murder in Ten Objects, but then I very quickly realized that ten objects was too unwieldy and was just too messy and, you know, you'd have to kind of go through each one and how could each one be different. Mm. And so then I just pulled it down to the four with each one being arranged at the points of the compass, which I quite liked because I thought, oh, you know, she, we and, and Lawton are going on a journey. And so the notion of these objects being placed like and described as being laid at the points of a compass you know I kind of liked that imagery and and so I sort of started from that and um and so Lawton came out of it you know the, the two questions I initially asked was who's the victim and why she died and who's this person whose book's left there that means that who wrote this academic book uh, about how to process a murder scene that means there is no forensic evidence there apart from, you know the, the only thing that's left there the only clues are the things deliberately left there by the killer um, so that was my kickoff point, and 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 it all just you know I just started it all grew from that really. Interesting. So you you're a former producer. You produce TV shows. Yep, that's right. For my sins, as they say. And you had something to do with true crime, also. So some kind of true crime show. Did you produce that also? 
Well, it was, so I, yeah, I worked in television for 20 years, like full time, doing all kinds of things, travel shows, documentaries, comedy, all, you know, reality, all sort everything. Um, and then I wrote my first book when I was 40, when I was having a sort of mild midlife crisis. Well, I, it was, I'd always wanted to write a book and working full time in TV just leaves you no creative time, no juice left to do anything. So I kind of quit my job. I saved up and to buy me six months of of kind of not starving time and um, and just wrote what turned out to be the first half of my first book. Um, and then I became a full-time writer for four books um, and found it quite lonely uh, compared to the very noisy and uh, collegiate and uh, collaborative word of TV. So I sort of now do both. I, do, I still do bits of scripting for, for shows, for kind of docudramary things. I sort of write the voiceover scripts, which is good, and it's very quick um, while I'm ruminating a book. Or um, So I do that. And, but then what happened with the true crime thing was a friend of mine from my TV days was developing an idea, a true crime idea, with another big-name author um, about how true crimes uh, inspire their work, fiction, um, their, their crime books, um, and it got commissioned whereupon Big Name Author decided they didn't want to do it anymore. Uh, so my friend knew I was in the world and rang me and said, oh, who else? And we went through a list of names. And I said, well, the problem is, I don't think any author, no matter how many books they've written, is going to have enough material to cover, to, to make a 10-part series, yeah. which is what they were talking about. It's just they're going to run out really quickly. And also, if they're a big, successful author with that kind of career, they're just not going to have the time. They're not going to spare the time to be able to make a 10-part show. Um, so I said, well, what you should do is have a different author in each episode, just telling the one good story about the one book and whatever. And said, and then also you'll get a really good variety. You'll get loads of different people. you get men and women. you get all the publishers on board as well, rather than just one. Um, and it will be much better. And, uh, and so she went back and pitched that. And they said, no, that's great. We'll do that. But we need a presenter. We need someone who's going to be the sort of, you know, the face of this. Um, yeah. And having done loads of pitches for TV shows myself and, and knowing that like 95% of them never see the light of day, she said, oh, would you do it? And I went, yeah, fine. I'll do a screen test thinking it was never going to happen. And promptly it got commissioned with me as the presenter. So I did two series of that, which was great fun. I mean, I ended up... Um, doing episodes with people like Tess Gerritsen and Karen Slaughter and, and you know, so, and these basically hanging around with amazing storytellers telling amazing stories, these true crime stories. Um, the Tess Gerritsen one was about a, a family of serial killers in Oregon um, mm. and the um, Karen Slaughter one was about this guy in the 80s, 70s, 80s, who was very handsome and very charismatic and went on a, but was very evil and went on a killing spree across Georgia, as, well, multi-states, but including Georgia. And so we sort of, we covered the Georgia leg of that. She told me the story. It was amazing. Hmm. Um, so yes, that was it. It's called Written in Blood. Uh, and it's kind of shown pretty much everywhere, I think. I don't know if it's on in America. I think it has been. I don't know if it still is. Check yeah, it out. It's there. Yeah, hmm. they're good. They're really good. But now, so now you're focused on writing. You really want to write books. Well, I always have been, really. I mean, ever since my first book was published, which is uh, right. 11 years ago now, um, that's my primary goal. But I think the thing is, so when I became a full-time writer, it's that thing of be careful what you want, you know, because even though I was very lucky that my books were published and were doing well enough that I could earn a living just writing, um, they're hard work writing books, and it's very solitary. You disappear into your head a lot. And, um, and I know that suits a lot of people, but it didn't really suit me. And I just was just feeling... It just, I just kind of was losing the joy in it a bit. Um, 
And so now I do bits of TV scripting. I did oh, you TV still do show that? where I presented mm. it. Yeah, I still do bits and bobs. You know, but it's, I, I can drop. The good thing about it is, you know, a book is all you. It's you, you on your own, and every decision is yours. And it takes a long time to write a book. You know, it takes a year really. Um, I can drop in and do like four weeks on a show and write some scripts and a few jokes and send it off and it's finished and then leave and it's not my responsibility and I'm working with an editor and producers and it's, you know, it's it's kind of fun. It's like no pressure and, and different kind of writing because, you know, you're just writing linking stuff. You don't have to describe anything because you're seeing pictures, you know, so it's, 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 it's much, um, it's a different discipline it's, and it's quite a nice thing to do. You know, it's like riding a bike. You know, it's just like you jump on and ride a bike and it's kind of fun and then you get off and do something else. Um, so I, I do think having the break, the mental break from the pressure of just writing books is really useful. And I often, you know, while I'm doing a, t a short TV job, will be thinking about something else or will be making notes on something or doing notes on a book, which is what I'm doing now. Um, so, yeah, so it's, good. it's quite healthy, I think. I think it's very healthy. I think if you're creative in any way, I think it's good not to do just one thing because you can very easily make you fall out of love with it. Um, I think it's good to do as much as, you know, a variety of things. Um, I think it's just very yes. healthy. Definitely. I mean, it certainly makes the days more interesting because then you can wake up saying, what am I going to do today? And it's, and it's something different, and, and that's got that's to feel good. Well, also, it gets you out of the house, and, you know, you need to gather material. You know, you, 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 so you put all loads of stuff in a book, and then you need to, you need new stuff. All right. So when you get to the point where you're you're feeling closed in and you need to talk to somebody, who do you call? I mean, do you have friends that you just call and, and communicate with, um, or do you, do you go out to dinner? Or? I've got, yeah, well, I've, I've got, um, my, my kids are all still at home at the moment. I've got three kids at home, so it's quite oh, a noisy okay. household. How do you rate in that atmosphere? <laughs> I quite like it. I feed off the energy. I really do. I mean, I lock myself away in a room, but I quite like the. I like hearing other things going on outside. I find silence quite oppressive. Like I never work in silence. So, you know, even if on my own, I'll just have. Sometimes I'll just put the radio on in another room, just so that there's no silence. Not in my room because it's too distracting, but like somewhere in the house, just so there's a noise going on, and you know. You don't keep um, any true crime pictures around where the kids would accidentally find. <laughs> You're getting like a little bit of everything. I mean, you have the kids, you have you have your work, you have different things you can work on, and you know it's just you have it. You have a lot going on. Yeah, and mostly it works. Occasionally, it all this is the way of these things. Like two or three things come to a head at the same time. I've just had that because I've had the book, this dark object coming out in the UK. Then a week later, it came out in the US and Canada. So I was doing a ton of stuff for that with different time frames and different, you know, sort of. I don't know why they, why do they do that? Why do they stagger the times when they come out? Doesn't that frustrate the, the, your readers? It's, 
yeah, it's really frustrating because, like, because what will happen is you, and because with social media, you'll announce that the book is out. You go, it's out, and then immediately people go, no, it's not. And you're like, oh yeah, no, sorry, where are you? Oh, you're in South Africa. Yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, next month, next Tuesday, you know, and, and you sort of do all that. Or sometimes it's a couple of months later, and you, you get really, you just feel very apologetic because you're sort of, you know, very happy that your book is out. And then quite a lot of people are unhappy; they can't read it. It's very, it's really difficult. And you can geo-target on social media and stuff like that. But even so, it's word gets out and people get cross, and they, you know, I don't, and I have no control over it. I don't know. You know, I don't say, right, it must come out at this time. A lot of it is slots available and, you know, times they think it's going to be, it's going to be received better and avoiding big times where, you know, big authors are all coming out, all that sort of stuff. You know, it's a dark art and I have nothing to do with it and no control. So I just write the books. I hit my deadlines. I deliver on time. You're very disciplined, it sounds like. Move on to the next one. Well, you have to be. If you're doing lots of things, I think if you're a writer anyway, you need to be disciplined because it's such a slog that you do just need to sit yourself down. You need a routine. You know, it's one of the best tips is just get a routine, even if it's, you know, half an hour a day, to make sure that that time is ring-fenced so that you will write something. You are not doing anything else and nothing else can encroach on that territory. And that's, you know, and that's how you write a book bit by bit. I'm curious how you view yourself as a writer. Do you have other writers that you you read them and you think, oh my God, I wish I could write like that? Or do you think that you're pretty good yourself? Um, I think think objectively I'm better than I used to be. I think I've I've always been quite a good storyteller. I think just innately, I think it's one of those things. It's like being tall, you know, you just... You just are, right. and I just, you know, I've always been aware that I could tell a story, and I could always sort of, you know, I've always been good with words, and you know, articulate and able to communicate and express myself very particularly and specifically. Um, it, but I mean, writing a book and telling a story, you know, writing a novel is a is a whole. There's a real craft, and I think you definitely get better at that the more you do it, and also the more you read because you, you know, you you just absorb good practice from other people um and and yeah reading really good writers is intimidating because you just go oh that's good i'm writing something that well and it, and it is a bit but then you sort of when you're actually writing your own story you're not directly comparing yourself to someone or you're trying to you're very focused on what's in front of you and just trying to make the thing in front of you as as at work as well as it can and and which is part of the you know the sort of joy of writing as well it's you know it's very absorbing and very rewarding when it gets you. I mean, it's very hard it's a lot of slog as well because you know a lot of the time you're getting it wrong and you know you're writing stuff that you can have to rewrite and you're fumbling towards something and but that's that's the pro- i think now that i'm on my seventh book eighth book um i've sort of learned that that struggle is the process and it's not because you're rubbish or because you're you know you've got nothing left to say it's just part of the process and i've spoken to lots of authors who are way further down the line than me um and they all say the same you know it's just one of those things it doesn't get easier it's you know, if anything it gets harder because you've got this weight of expectation because you've got readership now and you've got and if you're certainly if you're writing a serious character um Imagine how it was for the, the, the lady that wrote Girl on the Train. Imagine how it was for her writing a second book after the first book. Well, I think so, she struggled. Yeah, she did. I, and I think, you know, when her book came out and it was not particularly well received, um, and I think it was, I think she struggled with it. I think her next one, um, which was the one that's just come out, has been lots of people, it's, it's back, 
Bluetooth is like back on track and lots of people are going, oh, it's great. It's yeah, that second one was very strange. Very, yeah, very strange. Yeah, it was multiple perspective, wasn't it? And it was really difficult to follow the voices. And it was just very, it was confu- I found it confusing and quite hard to follow. I found it a difficult read. It just felt, it felt like a book that had been hard to write. You know, sometimes you can just feel the struggle, you know, and you don't want to be feeling the struggle when you're reading a book. You just want to be, you, you well, want the struggle should make it an easy ride for the reader. Um, and that, makes, that leads me to a question. How many drafts do you do before you, you've done as many as you can? I mean, how many um, do you know? <laughs> it's, well, it depends. I mean, it's really hard to say because I revise as I go along. I know a lot of people don't. They'll just write oh, me and just do a draft. So I, I do... <laughs> I tend to, um, like when I start work the next day, I'll always normally read the page or so beforehand um, just to get back into the rhythm of it. And inevitably what I'll do is I'll edit that a bit. I'll tighten it up and tidy it up. And and then sometimes normally when you're in the middle of a book or certainly towards the, you know, the third quarter of a book, there's loads of where things are really up and running and it's really at sort of maximum speed or building up to maximum speed there's often something you discover that you need that you haven't set up that you need that you know something needs to happen there but you haven't set it up so I'll often make I, I sometimes I will I can't go forward until I've gone back and laid whatever it is in introduced the character or a theme or something that that, that is mentioned in a couple of chapters mm-hmm. prior to that point in the last third of the book um I find I can't write forward until I know that that's, the, you know, the foundations are there. So I'm always toing and froing. I mean, I think, so by the time I actually do a readable first draft or a decent first draft, it's probably two or three drafts in anyway, in terms of how many times I've gone over it. Um, and then I'll read it and do another quick draft. Then I'll probably show it to my first readers, uh, which is my wife, who's really good and very brutal. She's doesn't hold back, and uh, which is good because that's what you want. You don't want someone going, "Hey, it's great." You want someone going, "Don't really doesn't this bit doesn't work?" Because you need, you know, you want to fix it. You want to make it better. Um, and my agent reads it, um, and sometimes depending on what I'm writing, I'll write. So, like my the book before this was, or the two books before this was set in Arizona, and I've got loads of writer friends, so I sent it to a couple of American author friends to read it and just to make notes about where I was sounding English, if you know what I mean, you know, because I can sort of try and do an American authentic mm-hmm. accent on the page, but there'll be things that creep in, like a, a, a word or a figure of speech that's just more European than American, and and, and so, yeah, so I, I, I'll give it to sort of people. Like this one, I, um, I actually sent the early draft to an old school friend who had just retired from the police force. Um, and he read it through and basically gave me tons of notes about all the things I'd got wrong about, you know, because I'd researched it quite well and I thought I'd researched it quite well. And I thought, you know, in terms of procedure and how things work, because you can learn a lot just from reading. But he said, no, they'd never do that. In, yeah, that's what it says in the books. But what we actually do is, and so I kind of then did a pass, a sort of um, procedural pass for the police stuff. Just little things of how, you know, how they process, how, how just the mechanics of how a murder scene is set up and who does what and what happens next and who's called first and all those sorts of things. Um, and there's a scene in, there's a, in the middle of the book where there's a raid on a location where they think the suspect, yeah, the killer yeah. is. And they kind of charge into 
this thing and I'd initially written it quite pared down and sort of, you know, like, like a movie, just kicking through doors. And he was just like, you know, no, you would never do that. If you think someone's armed and desperate, you, you don't go charging through doors. He said, for a start, you'd have a police unit there. Uh, you'd have a police dog unit there for a start, you know. And so I kind of rewrote the whole thing. Um, and funnily enough, I've one of the reviews, I think from an old ex-policeman said it was one of the best authentic police raid scenes that they'd read. Really? So obviously, it was, so yeah. yeah, it paid off. But I think you know, if you're writing fiction, you 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 might as well get the, st the stuff that you can get right. You might as well get right, right. because because it, it helps um, frame the fi it, it helps make the fiction seem real. Um, you know, it's like you've got to get the gun stuff right. You've got to get vehicles right. You've got to get the medical stuff right. There's another friend of mine who's a heart surgeon who I, I kind of there's certain medical things going on in the book and um, I ran them all past him and he was, he was, he loved it. He was like, oh, hang on, what, 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 what disease could this person have? Well, he could have this, but then he would present this, so that would be a telltale thing. So we can't have that kind of thing, you know. Mm. It was, it was uh, yeah, good. You need people like that. So yeah, so so with all of those, it probably went through about four or five drafts before I even. Sh showed it to my editor, um, or my two editors, I'm with HarperCollins in the UK and the US, and they mm. both get it at the same times and then read it and I get sort of combined notes. Um, and then I did, I think, another three lots of notes or, or like one major pass and a couple of minor ones with them. So by the time it was done with copy edits and everything, it was probably, I would say about eight drafts. It must feel great when it's finally finished. Yeah, I mean, it must be like celebration. <laughs> like, oh God! Well, it's a mixture of just exhaustion that you're sort of stumbling over the finish line, and and it's kind of kind of mild elation that you've got there and finished. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, do you think some authors it comes easier for than others? I, do you know? I think I think. Well, yes, I, th I think some writers find the writing process hard, harder than others. But I also think, and I know this anecdotally, and I know it from my own experience, some books are easier to write than others. I don't know why. They just, they, I don't know, they just sort of fall into place a bit easier. They're never easy, but some are easier than others. Like this one was felt easier than some of my previous books just because, I think because the characters just felt more real immediately. They just, I just sort of knew them. And it might have been because I've been thinking about this idea for a while while I've been writing other things. And so when I actually came to put them down, I'd, I'd sort of figured them out probably better than... They were more figured out in my head, in my subconscious, than I thought. And so they... Because it's almost me. like you... When you're writing, even if you write something bad, you, at least you're writing. And at least you can go back and say, well, that doesn't sound like I've got to change that. But... You can't be afraid to write something bad and have somebody read something bad. You can't be afraid that, or be embarrassed because you have, you have to be used to that criticism. You do, and I think I think some authors find that hard as well. I mean, one of the I think one of the great things uh, about coming from the world of television was t you know TV criticism is brutal. You know, people will watch your finely cut. Um, <clears throat> first assembly of whatever it is that you've been working on and somebody exec or the commissioner will come in and read it and just go and watch it and just go oh, no I hate it it's boring mm. we need to do this and whatever and you know and just rip it to shreds in front of you this thing that you've been finally crafting mm -hmm. and then they leave and then you go to the pub with the editor and swear a lot and drink and, and call them an idiot and then the next day you go in and you start fixing it and, and it's and actually you know it's a process it's fine and most of the time 
you know, some of what they say is right, some more than others, and you respect more people more than others because, you know, they're, they're, some people just make changes for changes' sake. I've never found that in publishing. I think in publishing it's a lot more thoughtful. In TV it's all very quick. Some of them, they watch it and they make quick decisions without really thinking about it. Because they're higher up the food chain, you have to do it. You know, it's all very... You know, you've had some. I've had to ruin programs that are perfectly good because, on the whim of the commissioner, because they've decided that it needs to focus on this character that you know is bad, rather than this character that you know is good, just because they've watched it probably not properly and gone, "I really like that guy. Let's focus on him." And then you know, that's it. There's no comeback. That never happens in publishing. They really, they read it, they reread it, they make notes, they can, can, they get other people to read it, they confer, and when they give you notes, it's never a "this is awful, change it." It's always couched in a, I'm not sure, you know, I, I kind of struggle with this, I'm not sure whether this is clear enough, you know, it's all very helpful, it's all very, um, it's all Yeah, very, it's helpful because uh, they're not being, they're not try, really trying to criticize you, they're just trying to help you. They really they want are, to help. they're trying to, yes, they're trying to, there's less, there's less of a sort of power ego thing involved in publishing than there is in TV. In TV there's a lot of people who are in it, and it's, I like the power, and they're, you know, the way it's run is, it's all very quick, it's all, you know, quick turnaround, and it's not very thought. A lot of TV is not very thoughtful. Not everything. I mean, you know, we are in a golden age of TV drama, for sure. Um, but a lot of the I don't do dramas. I do. I've ended up doing all kinds of other things. Um, where often it's not very well made, and so it needs a really good script to tie it all together. And so they call me, and <laughs> I will tie it all together with the script, so it actually looks like it, it actually tells the story. Um, yeah. But the good thing about that is I'll do that and I'll get some idiot commissioner sort of giving me stupid notes that will make me annoyed. And it just makes me want to go and sit in my room and write a book and kill people on the page. It's good fuel. Oh, that's interesting. And then when I've been on my own in that room for several months struggling with a book, I'm desperate to go back and sit in the room and have some idiot come and, you know, tell me my... my Program's not very good. And he could be the only person that didn't like it. Everybody else in the whole world could love it, and it could only be him that hates it. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, no, it's true. And there's so many. And the thing is, there's a lot of very bright um, people working in television. Um, and they, there's a real, I don't know if it's the same in America, I think it is, but I, I, there's a real, there's a sort of a, they kind of patronize the audience. I think with a lot of the reality, they really think the audience is stupid and they treat them as stupid and they're like, oh, we can't, you know, uh, you need to explain this. You need to put a line of voice there explaining what you're looking at. And you're like, do I, do I though? You can see it. Everyone knows what a, whatever a bear is. You don't need to go, then he sees a bear. But they, they, they really think the viewers are stupid and aren't paying attention. And so you have to kind of do this really hampered, I call it radio with pictures kind of storytelling. Um, and, and and I don't like that. And cause, and then conversely, I go to the work. Well, fun, funnily enough, the very first draft I did of my first book, I handed it in, and um, to when I got an agent, and she read it, and she said, "Why, why you keep repeating things? Like every thirty pages, you'll have a scene where a character goes right. So what do we know? And we'll just repeat stuff we already know. And it's because I come from TV, where you have to repeat things mm-hmm. at the start of a part, at the end of a part. You're constantly redoing recaps." Because you, because people don't trust that the, the viewers paid any attention, and also they're thinking that people will have come in, you know, they're channel hopping, they'll have come in, so you need to explain the story. 
with a book. You're sat there, you've decided to read a book, and you don't need a recap. You've read it. You're not stupid. You remember what these characters are and who they're from and why they're on the page and why they're there. And so, you know, that was the learning thing of just, yeah, you don't need to you just trust the intelligence of the reader. You don't have to just repeat things every 50 pages. They'll remember. That's interesting. Um, so, yeah, so I have to adjust when I switch between the two. But again, that's, it's good, you know, it's good to just do different things. I had no idea. The way you describe writing and writing with TV and writing books, it sounds like such a hard process. And usually when I talk to authors, they do, it does sort of suggest that, but for some reason, the way you describe it seems even harder. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, well, writing for TV or books? Either. I mean, because it just seems like you go through a lot of tension and a lot of stress. Well, you, I, yes. I mean, I think, I mean, partly I think, I'm quite, a, I'm sort, I am quite a perfectionist. You know, I do try and get things right. I can't just if I see something I don't think is right, I can't leave it. I have to do it. And so, like in TV, if I'm not the ultimate arbiter of what the final cut is, that can cause problems because there'll be a tension there of like me thinking, no, this is right, and you made me change it, and it's wrong, and so you know. But I've just learned to let go because ultimately it's like it's fine. You're paying. Because with you're TV right. writing, you've got everybody watching you, everybody. Breathing down yeah, your neck, there's a lot of opinions. You, yeah. There's a lot of opinions, yeah. And there's also a lot of uninformed opinions. There's people who just parachute in the end and watch it, and, you know, they're, they're senior, so they need to watch it and have an opinion, and they'll just give you notes for the sake of it, and you just have to sort of kind of politically, you know, kind of look like you're doing them or... What shocks me about TV is the, the level of violence and blood and gore on TV nowadays is so much greater than it used to be. It is, but it, it's almost become sort of, it, it desensitizes you, doesn't it? Because it's just, it's everywhere, and you just go, oh, right. and like, you know, effects, and with the sort of ubiquity of special effects, they'll, 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 you know, it's like, oh, we can throw that guy off that building, and he can just, like, land on a car, and, and so they'll do it. Whereas previously, you'd go, oh, I can't do that, it's a really expensive and dangerous stunt. Now you just, you know, have someone jump in a green room with a bungee jump on them, and a, and a computer nerd paints in the rest so you get a lot of that and there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of um explicit violence but this I think is, again i think it's not good storytelling like in like in dark objects the murders you don't see the murders happen you see the after effects of the murder you mm. know and you can you can see the violence evident in in the evidence that's left behind but i don't describe you know how the murder happens and how it, you know it's all it's all implied by what's left behind. Um, and then with the second murder, the second body that is found, again, it's it's macabre and it's disturbing, but you don't see it happen. It's but it's so effective anyway. I mean, the way you write just makes it totally effective. And it's, it's the book just gets more fascinating as you read it. Well, good. I mean, that's the idea. You want to start off with a big with a question, and then you know, embroider more questions as you go along, and and sort of start off on a from a position of vague familiarity, and then go deeper into a, a more unfamiliar world. Because I think I just think as a reader, that's exciting as well, where you sort of feel you're getting more and more off the beaten path. It makes me wonder. I mean, if you if you had author friends and they asked you to read their book and you got like forty pages and you were bored to tears, what would you do? Would you would you continue on or would you tell them that you had trouble reading it? I mean, what would you it do? Dep it depends. It depends. If, if if a friend has sent me a book to read that's an early draft and they want to fix it, then I will give notes. I'll say, right, okay, well, I'm you know, it just needs to get going. I sort of you know, and I'll but I'll try and be constructive. 
perspective, I'll say my interest was, was I lost it for this section and it was picked up against here. So how can we move that bit? Right. You know, so I'll try and give practical, you know. Well, you have to. I mean, you have to be honest. Well, yeah. if, if they're giving you the book, they want you to be honest. They don't want you to lie to them. But what if it is bad and it gets published and, and you never told them? Then you're in real trouble. Well, the hardest, well, and also the hardest thing is when friends send you proofs, you know, so you know that it's been through the whole process and it's a, an advanced reader copy or whatever, and they're just sending it to you because they want you to like it and give them a quote, and you start reading it, and you're just like, oh, this is just not, I'm just not enjoying this. This is not for me. This is, you know, and you're thinking, you're thinking, oh, I'd change that and I'd move that around. That's difficult. That's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um and at that point, it's too late, and there's no mileage in saying, do you know what, I think this book of yours that you've sent to me and you've worked for it on for a year and it's about to come out, I don't think it's very good. That's, you know, that's, they're going to hate you. It doesn't do anyone any favors. So normally what you do is you just go, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't had time to read it. I'm just really busy, which, which to be honest, is true a lot of the time anyway. Don't tell any of your writer fans that you lie. <laughs> no, but the, well, the thing is, they'll live, yeah, anyone who listens to this now will go, hang on, he said that to me. But the thing is, in a lot of the cases, it is true. In a lot of the cases, is you just haven't got time to just, you know, I, I can't read all the books that get sent to me or that I want to read. I mean, it wonders, yeah. makes you wonder about Lee Child, who has so many blurbs. I mean, he must have a thousand blurbs on books. And yet, how yeah, does he... He's, yeah, it's him and Stephen King, aren't they? Sort of seem to be like everyone's been blurbed by them. I have, to, I haven't been blurbed by either of them, so I kind of feel like I'm in a sort of very elite club. Of, uh, but I wonder. It makes me wonder what what Stephen King looks for in a book. Because I've read some of the books he's recommended; they're not always that great. Some of them are a bit a bit odd. No, I know what you mean, and I've I've done the same. I've picked up a book. In fact, I don't do it anymore because I've picked up books because it's got the name of an author I like on it, and I'll start reading it, and I'm just thinking, God, this is just, oh, yeah, why? And I, I start exactly like you. I start more wondering what they were thinking of and what they look for in a book if they recommend this. And, you know, and being inside it, I probably think, oh, they're probably friends and they're doing a favor, and I don't know. I don't trust blurbs. Um, and it's always it's quite onerous when you have a book out and the publisher's like, oh, could you send this to all your writer friends? Because you're like, and so you go, oh, hi, sorry, can I send you my book to read? I don't have to read it. It's all really, it's quite icky. Because I know what a burden it is as well. Because then also sometimes you're just not in the mood. You might like a book and you might, but you're just not in the mood. For, you know, you, sometimes right. you know, I start reading a book and I can tell it's good, but I'm just not in the mood for it. So for whatever reason, so I'll put it to one side and I'll come back to it. But if there's a deadline of like, please read my book, it's coming out in two months, can you give me a quote? And it's, you're just not in the right frame of mind. It's tricky. So, yeah. Well, you read a yeah. book like I did recently, and it has a character with a woman who drinks like a fish. I mean, literally like a fish. And all I, I'm reading the book while I enjoyed the book. I keep thinking to myself, well, I wish you would stop drinking so much. <laughs> and funny, is it? When you notice things like that, you just can't, all you notice is that thing that you've picked up on. There's um, this, uh, a friend of mine who's a writer or uh, wrote a book and sent me their second book. And their character just ate all the time. Same thing. Just every scene, they were eating something. They were eating something or throwing away a wrapper or something. Just like every single thing. Like to the point where it kind of just almost got silly. I was just sort of thinking, yeah, you know, it's good to have these little quirks of characters. But like literally every time this character appeared, they were munching away on something. And it just got distracting to the point where 
like you, when they appeared, all I could focus on was the fact of what they're eating now and why they're eating and why aren't they the size of a And it becomes even more pronounced when it's drinking because then you're wondering, or, or is what they're describing yeah, really can't. happening? <laughs> well, yeah. You do just start worrying about their liver and their right. general health. And, 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 and the fact that maybe they're hallucinating, too, is what I'm saying. Well, I mean, you know, there was that whole spate, wasn't there, of, of um, psychological domestic thrillers where you'd normally have the unreliable narrator who was right. agrophobic, alcoholic, whatever, and so was therefore saw something, but no one trusted them because they're, they're drunk, whatever, um, which sort of became a bit of a trope for a couple of years. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you just, yeah, girl, it, it, girl on the train, girl on the train, girl on yes. the train. Mm -hmm. Exactly that. But, but how? You just wonder. Um, it, it, the, every book you have a different reaction to, and it's and it's wonderful. But there are books that really annoy you, and you can't always tell the. <laughs> it's not always supposed no, to tell you well, what you think, but. Well, no, but also, it's sometimes it's not because it's a bad book. It's just because it's not for you, and that's that's quite a hard one to navigate. Uh, particularly if you know the author or whatever, yeah, it's very difficult. Um, it's so, I mean, reading is such a, it's such an intimate thing, reading, um, you know, because it is really a, just a conversation between you and the writer. You know, the writer tells the story and you will be, but you, the reader gives it life, you know, without one, the, it, the, the story in book form only exists with the writer and the reader, you know, it's that contract between the two. And it's very intimate, and so inevitably, you know, the the writer is outlining certain things and filtering it through their own sensibilities and experiences. So, I agree. But then as a reader, you're bringing yours to it as well, and sometimes it really works, and it really feels like that person is telling a story that is about you or speaks to you, and sometimes it just doesn't. Sometimes it just misses, and that's fine. So the next book, I assume you're, how far into it are you? I've written it. It's written. It's actually um, written. Does it have a title yet? It's called The Cinder Man. The, what's it called? The Cinder Man. Oh. Oh, The Cinder Man. Okay. I couldn't under man. understand exactly what you were saying for some reason. I think my hearing's gone. Probably my accent. Um, Cinder Yeah, so it's... So it's it's the Cinderman is a is a, a legend uh, a kind of folklore boogie man who from the forest of Dean which is about two hours outside of London this ancient forest where the where Henry VIII cut the oak to make his warships and so you know and it's it's a, it's a sort of wild place um, with lots of folklore um, and uh, my dogs are having a little fight next to us oh, you you hear that growling oh well, yeah I do So this will be out next okay. year, you think? About this time? Uh, it will be out next July, yeah. So it will come out a year after um, Dark Objects. Now, um, does that mean the UK will get it first again? Uh, maybe. I, but, but it was only a week. Uh, this time the UK only got it a week before America. So I must admit, I like the dark. I like the UK Dark Objects cover better than the United States one. I don't know it's why. It's funny. It's funny. Um, a lot of the UK readers have said the same. They like the American version rather than the English version, and and America, quite a few Americans, North Americans, have said, "Oh, I really like the English cut." So it's weird. It's funny that because in theory, uh, the publishers should produce a cover that speaks to and engages their market and will work for their market. But it seems anecdotally that both the UK and the US have got it wrong, 
and they should have just swapped covers. <laughs> exactly. Because it seems that whatever they've done, the other people go, "Wow, oh, I really like that." You know, loads of, the U- loads of people I've met in the UK, the UK have gone, oh, "I really like the American cover. It looks really moody, and I like the darkness and the figure in the window and all this." And the yeah, the British one is very bright and you know very minimalist, just with a with a book with a few blood spatters on it. Um, right. Which the, would you say you like one over the other? I like them, but I do like them both, which isn't always the case. But I do like them both. Um, you couldn't even, if you were forced to pick one over the other, you wouldn't be able to? Um, well, I probably could, but like on my phone. So my, <laughs> my save screen is the UK one, and then my unlock screen is the American one. So I kind of, you know, they're, they have equal. I suppose the one I see the most is the UK one, because that's my... Well, how many countries are you published in? Uh, well, I have been translated in 29 languages. Not this book, but like I am, oh, wow. you know, previous books. Um, so I'm all over the place. Um, this one is starting to get picked up in various places, but it's only out in English-speaking countries at the moment. So, you know, uh, I think it's out in um, Australia n- next week, or maybe, no, this week. It's out this week in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so will it be South uh, Africa? Here's the big question: Will it be? On, are we going to see this on TV at some point? I don't know. There's been discussions, um, and it's definitely I could see it working as a as a limited season yeah. crime drama. Definitely. Um, um, but I, you know, it's like I've had things optioned in the past, and they go into development, they get turned around, they get picked up again. It's one of those. Yeah, I have no control over it, um, and I have. I mean, I would like to see something of mine go on screen because I think it would be a nice full circle thing of coming from TV and then writing something that ends up on TV would be nice. Um, but I just, you know, my major focus is just writing the next book. So if it happens, it'd be lovely, and if it doesn't happen, the next book will, will appear. That's a good way to look. on schedule. That's a good way to look at it because how else can, how else can you? There's no, you can't. You can't get your hopes up too high because then you, I mean, if it doesn't happen, you're going to be very disappointed. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. And anecdotally, you know, look at it. It's like so many things get um, optioned and very few things. Even even with the the amount of streamers and various outlets, um, st- still relatively little gets made. I'm trying to think who would be good to play Lawton Rees. She's sort of, now how old is she in this book, by the way? She's about 30. 30. So she's 30 and her daughter's 15. Who's, so Maybe like Emily Blunt. Maybe. I'm not sure if Emily Blunt's probably a tiny bit too old now. Yeah, she might be a little older than that. Because also the thing about Lawton is she's quite, um, I think Emily Blunt has got, she's, I mean, the thing is because Emily Blunt has done things like Sicario in A Quiet Place, she's got baggage in terms of... Right of her credentials, whereas I think Lawton needs to be, you need to underestimate her. She needs to be smart. You know, she's basically, she's like, she's like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. You know, sort of slight and nervous, but also fierce. I want to say, like, maybe Dakota Fanning, but I don't know if she's, she would be good on that part. I can't see her. Yeah, she could do it. I tell you, he'd be really great, um, is, oh, I can't remember her name now. I've said that. Um, is it Julie Garner? She was in uh, Ozark, and... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She 
she's amazing, I think. She is she's amazing. Right, you know, she's small, but she's also intelligent and fierce. And Yeah, I can see that. That's definitely yeah. a possibility. If well, she can do an English accent, or we could just transpose it to America, that would be easy. could do that as well. Yeah. At one point, I did, think of, I did think of setting it in San Francisco. Um, oh, really? But then I yeah. decided to not set it in London instead, just because I know London better. I don't know San Francisco that well. Well, it's been it's been so wonderful to talk to you. It's almost been an hour. It doesn't seem like an hour that we've been talking. Is it really? Well, there you go. It's good. That's always a sign of a good conversation. I can't like wait it. to read The Cinder Man next year. It's going to be something to look forward to for next year. Good. Well, there you go. We can continue the conversation then. Absolutely. And, and, you're, and then you'll know... And, and you can you can remind and if I've forgotten to put in the reminder of how to pronounce Lawton's name at the beginning of the book, you can pull me up on it. <laughs> I'm going to laugh every time I think about that. Now listen to me. I'm, I'm, African. <laughs> I can't help it. I, I can't believe I made that blunder. But you know, it, it happens, no, and that's what makes it fun. But and yeah, so oh, I'm I'm just looking forward to the second one because she's so interesting. So it's been you're, you're such a delight to talk to. You really are. And it's, oh, well, you were a very easy person to talk to, so you know it works both ways. It's funny um, when you um, contacted me, and I, I sort of had a look. I realised I'd listened to your things before because a friend of mine who lives very close to me, Ellie Griffiths, was on your. Oh yeah. Um, you spoke to her. Oh, she's wonderful. She posted that. Yeah, she lives because we I both live on the south coast of England, so she lives in the next town down. So we always go to each other's launch events. And you know what? Uh, it's funny well. you should mention her because my friend said to me last night she loves Ellie Griffiths, but the only thing she doesn't like about Ellie Griffiths is she, she uses was instead of were. And for for her the way she writes, and I thought I didn't even notice that, and I don't know. Yeah, I haven't noticed that. And, I probably will now. And now it's like. I, I, should I tell her? Should I not tell her? Somebody had to have mentioned it. If it's if she's if my friend's noticing and she notices everything, somebody else had to have noticed it. If it is indeed wrong, maybe it's right and she just doesn't realize that it's right. I don't know. Some, I don't know. Is it just in the body of the the, the book, or is it a character? Is it a character saying? No, it? it's it's in the body of the book. No, she doesn't oh, right, know okay. it was in the body of the book. But I right now I have to go back and look and see if she's. <laughs> Tell me what she says when you say that to her. <laughs> I will do. She'll be, she'll be, I don't know, she'll probably be mortified. Or she'll well, just take, take thank you again. I should mention the book again, Dark Objects. It's out from William Morrow and all your bookstores now in England and in the United States. And this has been David's Book Talk, and we'll talk to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover David English. Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.